0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with Sub China. SubChina is a great way to stay on top of China news in a few minutes a day with a daily email newsletter a mobile phone app, and at the website, SupChina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from the campus of the University of California, Berkeley, my alma mater, Go Bears, and I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Goldcorn. How are you, Jeremy?
0: I'm doing very well, Kaiser, very well indeed. Always a pleasure to be in the Bay Area. Yes,
1: it is, it is. You've been to Berkeley here before, haven't you?
0: I have, I, I, but the only real time I spent here was in 2001. Uh, I don't think it's really changed. <laughs> Changed <laughs> in
1: a lot of ways. Well, it hasn't changed since the 1960s, mainly. Well, I, I have a quick Berkeley story about how things never change here. We just walked by that bookstore I, I pointed at in that little alley between uh-huh. Channing and Durant called Revolution Books. It, it's it's moved locations. It was across the alley before when I was here, but it's, it's still there, which is kind of astonishing. In in 1989, my friend Drew, who you've met, he he and I had just come back from Beijing after the events of, of June of '89, after Tiananmen and all that. And um, we went up to campus and, and went to Revolution Books, and uh, we were there kind of just to see what their take was on what had just had happened. And there were all these posters in, in, in newspapers, their their own newspapers. I can't remember what they were called, you know, ridiculous commie names. But their take apparently was that the student protests were in fact about bringing back Maoism, bringing back the cultural revolution, that it was about overthrowing the counter-revolutionary clique of Deng Xiaoping. So it was it was pretty funny. We were laughing about the, their whole rightist coup business. Uh, but, uh, there was also a lot of pro-Sendera Luminosa shining paths of the Peruvian Maoists. And so I, I asked the guy, this guy who had been behind the counter there forever, I mean, he was a fixture of my whole undergraduate years there. I asked him, so do you guys also support the Khmer Rouge and he goes, hmm, hang on, Barb, do we support the Khmer Rouge? <laughs> <laughs> It was just, it was,
0: it was, it was so funny. <laughs> okay. So today let's uh, get into the meat of the podcast. We're going to be talking about law and the party state in contemporary China. As anyone who's been paying attention to the news from China is surely aware, the legal profession, especially those lawyers inclined to involve themselves in the defense of dissidents and their, their ilk, in those
1: picking fights
0: and causing trouble, these people have had it tough in China with uh, many prominent rights lawyers and not so prominent rights lawyers prosecuted and handed harsh sentences. So our guest today is someone with extensive knowledge and experience with the interplay between law
1: and politics in China. Rachel Stern, after all, is an associate professor here at Cal, both in political science and in law at the Bolt Law School here. We're in their library right now recording, so... In her work, she is focused in particular on social movements and environmental issues. And in a forthcoming paper that we're going to discuss a fair bit today, she examines how the Chinese bar exam reflects the changing political climate in China over the last decade. So, Rachel, welcome to Seneca and thanks for making time.
2: Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Welcome back to Berkeley.
1: Hey, hey, hey thanks. And thanks for those uh, delicious Vietnamese sandwiches. So, I guess I'd like to start just by jumping in and talking about this forthcoming paper of yours that I just mentioned. Uh, it's in the Journal of Law and Society about political reliability in the legal profession in, in which you do a, a real deep dive into the Chinese bar exam and the questions that are asked in that. So I guess the skinny, the upshot is that since the mid-2000s, 2007, I guess is the you point to, there was a noticeable uptick in the number of political or ideological questions that were actually in there, yeah? So do you want to walk us through sort of a, a major the major findings of the, of the paper?
0: And perhaps you could start with what the Chinese bar exam looked like prior to 2007, maybe provide a bit of background on the bar exam itself. Brief history of the Chinese bar exam. Yeah, what's yeah. characteristically Chinese about? And also, for those of us who may be a little ignorant of the American legal profession and terminology, what is a bar exam?
2: Sure. Let's see where to start. Um, so We're bar, just gonna
0: go have a drink. So, yeah, it's like, it's
2: like two hours later. You're gonna be sorry you asked that question. I'll try to keep it. I'll try to keep it brief. So the Chinese bar is the test that all of China's legal professions have to take. So it's a. It's it's for lawyers, it's for judges, and it's for the people who end up in the who end up as prosecutors working for the procuratorate. And it's a test that, that assures a baseline level of legal knowledge. So it was a big deal when it was first introduced, and the, the latest iteration uh, came into being in two thousand one. And at that point, it was one of the key reforms that was supposed to raise the quality of the so, people so working. Prior for to th- two
1: thousand one, there was no bar.
2: There was, uh, or a very low bar. <laughs> it's actually kind of not a joke. There really was a low bar, uh-huh. um, but there were different tests for these different professions in the 1990s. For so, the lawyers had their own test, the judges had their own test. Uh, so there were different entry points. So by bringing them together, they unified the, these different tests and also very much tried to raise the bar as part of raising the quality of the people who are working in these legal institutions. So that's what the bar exam is. It happens every year in September. It's a two-day affair. And it's it's a it's a big deal. It's not quite at the level of the Gaokao or the high school entrance exam, but you've got lots and lots of people studi- studying for the test, really, pretty frenetically, right. um, because it's the entry point into the legal profession.
1: So maybe you can talk about. Uh, Jeremy asked, "What about in how does it compare to the U.S. bar? I mean, is it is it modeled roughly on the American bar, or are there other countries that it looked that China looked at?
2: Yeah, was- China looked around." Mm-hmm. as they did with so many legal reforms sure. around that time period that they looked around to look at other countries and what they were doing. So it's most closely modeled after Japan. That oh, was okay. the, they looked closer than the U S for inspiration. Uh, that some of the key differences with the U S in China law is an undergraduate major. So you don't have to go to law school to take the bar oh, right. in the same way as you do in most American States. Um, that's one of the, one of the key differences. And the biggest thing is that in China, it, they threw up threw open the doors pretty wide. Anyone with who's majored in anything can take the bar exam. So if you're a chemistry major, that's cool. Take if you're an English bar. major, that's cool. Uh, and you get lots of people who study on their, study all the legal content on their own and then this is their main entry into the legal profession. Is what they, this kind of self study.
1: I see. What's, what's the format of it? Is it open ended essays at all, or is it all sort of multiple choice?
2: Mostly multiple choice. There's, uh, I think, 300 multiple choice questions oh, and God. then seven essay questions at the end.
1: Okay. So it's a combination of the two. Yeah. And, and how does that compare to the US?
2: Uh, the US is a, or it's, to it's not, states. yeah, it's, it's, state, it's, by state, it's state by state. Um, here in California, we've also got a big multiple choice section. We've also got essay questions, and then we also have a kind of practical component where would-be lawyers are supposed to look at legal materials and actually write a brief. So they don't have that part in China. But the general format, I think, is pretty standard now around the world, this idea that you have multiple choice and then also essay. Okay.
0: What about the, the sort of regional question? Why is it administered at a national level as opposed to province by province more as it is here in the U.S. where it's state by state?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that that you really kind of get down to the fundamental difference between the two political systems. Right. And the U.S. is so decentralized; so much stuff is state by state. Uh, it's a federal system in the U.S. and China's has always been about centralization of power and trying to ensure some uniformity over this mm-hmm. vast and varied place. That's an idea that has a long history.
1: And I guess I we started that multi-part question with you know what were the yeah, what, the, ma- the, yeah. the the upshot? What's the major yeah, findings yeah. of the paper?
2: So the major, the, the, the big thing is there's this really obvious change in the bar exam. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't a secret at the time. In 2007, this new topic was introduced, socialist rule of law. And this, and this kind of new political valence sure. uh, uh, that comes along with even that phrase was introduced into the bar exam. So I did some content analysis to look at how the bar became more political we see this turning point where it does become more political. There's almost no political content on the bar uh, between 2001 and 2007. And then this second point, the second period where roughly about 5% of the points on the exam are allocated to, to topics with a high political valence. Um, okay, so, so
1: only 5% though.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I find that really interesting.
1: Right, right, right. So, so it's I mean, not it's, a
2: litmus test. It's not like if you get every single political question wrong, you fail the bar exam.
1: That's interesting. That's interesting. So what do you suppose the significance of it is? I mean, the timing specifically of of this noticeable uptick in political questions. I mean, I think many people would associate the kind of hardening that we've seen all around this kind of new emphasis on ideology as something that, you know, happened when Xi Jinping came to power, you know, Document Nine and and all yeah. of this business. But uh, I've often thought maybe 2008 was more of the the pivot year. Uh, it was 2008 or 2009 when you kind of started to see a new assertiveness on the part of the party, a new concern over you know the power of the public sphere and it's the internet as kind of the home to that kind of rowdy and and uh, troublemaking bunch. Uh, what so 2007? What what was it about that that? that moment
2: yeah i think that the 2006 is the year that there's a big socialist rule of law education campaign that's announced Uh, so i think the first point is that you're absolutely right the roots of the current ideological tightening go far further back Mm -hmm. than xi jinping right and you can think about it as an intensification under xi jinping in fact we're poised people like me who are Way too into this stuff or very interested to see what this year's bar exam will look like. Mm. Because there was an announcement last year that the num, the percent of the test that's devoted to political topics is going to increase. Uh, surprise, surprise. Exactly. So, I, I mean, exactly. E- so we're e- waiting e- to see e- if what's going to happen this yes. year and then that's next year. Being
1: it's it's this, this week or something, right? Or next week.
2: Next week, I think. Um, September... Twenty first, I'm not I'm somewhere around there. Yeah, so we're there. recording
1: on the thirteenth today of September. In case you're wondering, so yeah, oh great. Um, how soon afterward will they actually make the, the questions available online? Should
2: be really fast.
1: Yeah, that's. It's the...
2: usually within within a week.
0: Okay, great. Um, so if it's, I mean, it's a test, right? And yeah. I mean, I know I've had a lot of Chinese people. Uh, say to me that you know, they had politics classes at high school or university and it was just something you got through and you memorized it and then immediately forgot it and it was just almost like a shibboleth but a, you know, a formality, you had to get through this. Um, does this actually have an effect on the conduct of practicing lawyers and perhaps you know, excluding the, the people who set themselves up as yeah. dissidents and rights activists, but the regular lawyer, is this going to affect his or her behavior?
2: Well, that's, kind of, that's what the paper is about. Um, it's a hard question to answer, and definitely when I present the paper in China, I get a lot of skepticism. And say the dominant reaction is skepticism. Uh-huh. This is the, people say this is such a small part of the exam. This is uh, these are questions that are really easy to memorize and then to forget. But I think that historically the Chinese Communist Party has taken a really deep position on this question. The long history of education, patriotic education efforts. And a really deep belief that what people say and how they express themselves in public is what matters, right? And right. that that has um, real implications for social control. And, and what's
1: your sense on that? Do you think that it does? Yep, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Totally that's
2: agree. what I, that's. I, I absolutely think that. Um, so that's what most of the paper is about. Is the argument is that these types of political questions, even though they're a small part of the exam, the argument is that they're training legal professionals. In the art of correct public behavior, the art of saying the right thing in public in exchange for points. I mean, right. it literally could not be a more direct thing. Say the right thing, get the points. Right, And it's an interesting bargain because it absolutely doesn't matter what people think privately. It actually just doesn't matter. You can have your own private thought and that's a different thing. I've been in
1: this this, this conversation a lot recently with my wife who's you know new to this country, new green card holder. And... Um, you know, she's pointing out the obvious hypocrisy in a lot of of public morality in in America. Uh, she says, "Look, you know, of course there there is still a lot of racism. There's still a lot of sexism. It's just, you know, what good does it do for you to just banish it from public discourse?" I said, "Well, it does a lot of good. Yeah. I mean, it it, it actually this is how political culture changes. I mean, it, it's you know when your children are not hearing this when when." uh you know it's it's often what you say and not what you do that i mean for for all our belief that it's the other way around I think that yeah I think that this is often the way that
0: things change jeremy do you, do you agree? Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, uh, forcing a speech code on people, whether it's sort of American liberal, you know, what is affectionately known as political correctness, or whether it's Chinese Communist Party p- political correctness, the speech code does change the way you think and your behavior ultimately. I for, think For good or so. for, yeah. for bad. Well, can be for good and can be for bad. It depends on the speech code, I think.
2: Yeah, I really like that American analogy. I don't know why I never thought about that before. But political correctness seems to me exactly the same and yep. i kind of come down on come down on the same side of that too yeah, in favor yeah. of not saying the horrible sexist exactly. racist things in public cuz exactly. it changes the environment.
1: Exactly. I, I completely agree.
0: Yeah. But when there's too much uh, punishment for, for, you know, overcoming the taboos, I start to get uncomfortable, you know, if you say the wrong thing. and As long as I it's think, not directed against me, know. I'm fine with it. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> and then they came for the long-haired rock gods, <laughs> podcasting rock gods. So um, the, the rate of people taking and then actually passing the bar exam jumped up appreciably from about 13% uh, to about 20% in 2007. Yeah the year that you say the political questions were introduced yep. why is that and does it have something to do with the you know the, the introduction, introduction of, of the yeah. ideological questions yeah.
2: the most honest answer is we don't really know uh, so this internal policy dis- you can- setting the pass rate is one of the important policy questions
1: but I mean, um, you have a graph in there that yeah. shows, I mean, these are marked jumps in pass oh, yeah. Oh, mean, they yeah, seem yeah, to be yeah. Oh, no, very deliberate.
2: They are very deliberate. There's absolutely right. no doubt about that. And I'll tell you what I think is going on. Okay, great. Um, too. I don't think it has to do with the politicization of the exam. I think it has to do with a decision to expand the number of lawyers in China. Uh, I see. Particularly so that there would be more lawyers in the western part of the country.
1: Uh, Quality be damned, just quantity.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think there's a belief that there's a right number of lawyers for Uh China. This is the legacy of the central planned economy. And for a long time now, I mean, throughout the whole reform era, lawyers have been concentrated in Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, Shenzhen. Those four cities.
1: So since 2012, the the pass rate, though, seems to have come quite far down.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think think, too many lawyers now. Yeah. I think there's I mean, uh, without being privy to the exact content of what's being said behind closed doors as people set the pass rate. I think there is a kind of adjusting of the dial.
0: Uh, Yeah. I don't like them lawyers. So what is the specific function then of the bar? You know, it's gatekeeper function.
2: Yep. It's a gatekeeper function to make sure that the people who are involved in the profession have a baseline level of legal expertise.
1: So just so people get an idea of what when we're talking about pass rates here, the yeah. pass rates for the, the bar, if you average the 50 American states, is what?
2: Like two thirds.
1: Yeah. So it's very, very high pass rates. So like,
2: Yeah. So we've got like almost the opposite system for China. Um, we've got a system where relatively few people can take the bar because in most states, not in all states, but in most states, you have to have gone to law school. Right. Um, and then, but if you have gone to law school, most people pass it. And in China, they have a system where they've thrown open the doors wide open to anyone who with a college degree who wants to spend the time studying this stuff. So you've got a huge pool of aspirants, and relatively few people pass it.
1: So we were just talking about how I think we both agree that the content of bar exams and I suppose it's pretty intuitively obvious to me. It influences the way that law is then taught as yeah. you know, people will teach to the test. Yep. Having an effect? Is it is it actually, you know, seeing this happen in, are you seeing this happen in law schools?
2: Oh yeah. I mean I think that the it's the the I happen to have written about the bar exam mm-hmm. for lots of reasons, including the fact that nobody had written about it in English before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think that the bar exam is really just the tip of the iceberg. The bigger phenomena is the growth of ideological classes in law schools, the increasing ideological emphasis on the one hand. And then the bar exam is an example of a standardized test with political content. There are so many examples, a standardized test with political content, like such as such the Gaokao, as, is probably yeah, the most sure, important, sure. and then the tests that people take to get into graduate school.
1: Are there other professional exams that mm-hmm. we're talking about? Okay, and those are all you see. I mean, I know this wasn't part scope of your.
2: Theory, yeah, no, we thought about I thought about expanding uh, writing something else about that. So we've got a research assistant looking into it. And it seems somewhat mixed, but a lot of <laughs>
1: architects. <laughs> the,
2: I mean, there's a huge number of professional licensing right. exams. There's exams for tour guides. There's exams for accountants. I mean, almost anything you want to do that's a white-collar occupation has an exam. Right. And many of those exams have political content.
0: That's very interesting. Um, it might be obvious to some of our listeners, but I think it would be useful to get your, your perspective on this. What is it about courts and about the legal profession that poses such a dilemma to authoritarian states?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, this is, I think, one of the core dilemmas for the Chinese Communist Party which is on the one hand, courts and law offer so many advantages for the Chinese leadership. Predictable, efficient dispute resolution, that you can argue that's a core characteristic of what states should provide for their citizens. So that's really linked to having Chinese citizens be happy with the performance of the party. Contracts, having enforcement of contracts, really important for economic growth. I mean, you can go on. There's a whole list of benefits to legal systems.
1: I can't remember whether it was in this paper, but I think you you actually, in one of your papers, you suggested that it's a good place to actually start to think of of, of courts in China as simply a
0: mechanism of dispute rev- yeah. resolution. Yeah, right?
2: I think that's one of the key things that they're doing. So all
0: And these... there are a lot of disputes in China, as anyone who's ever lived yeah. there knows very well.
2: And, I mean, I think the logic is really simple. Better courts than protest. Better right. to have these disputes. Or people in,
0: fighting in the streets, right? Right, that is... would be the other option. It would be mob <laughs> violence, yeah.
2: Um, so I think that's the logic. But on the other hand, courts are make, traditionally make authoritarian states really leery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you look comparatively and historically, in particular the legal profession, both lawyers and judges have often spearheaded calls for political liberalization. And mm. I think that the Chinese state is well aware of the history here, absolutely, um, around the world. So there's a, there are good reasons why the, the legal they've been keeping a close eye on the on the rights protection lawyers and on the public interest lawyers and others.
1: So there's one area of law where uh, I think the let's call it conventional wisdom says that they're that they've been a little less heavy handed. Mm-hmm. In, in cracking down that is another area that you've studied extensively, which is in environmental law. Uh, so maybe we can shift gears and talk a little bit about that area of, of your research. I think for a while, at least in the late aughts, I think your own work in this area pretty much confirms, at least in, in terms of numbers, there's a huge, huge surge in the number of yeah. environmental cases that were being brought before Chinese courts. Um, is there something that we're missing just by looking at sheer numbers, though?
2: Um, what are we missing by looking at sheer numbers it's in, the in question the words, of whether like, or not people actually win? Is that, yeah, is that yeah, kind yeah. of what you're thinking? What kinds of
1: cases? I mean, from reading your, that paper of yours, the impression that I really got was that this is this is these are kind of small time cases, yeah, and they're not yeah. really going after the enormo. E- like Farmer
0: Wang's field is polluted with something, with, and yeah, pig, you know, pig feces or
1: something, and then it's not, it's not, it's not like. Soes, it's not like a gigantic copper molybdenum, molybdenum smelter or whatever. That's getting.
2: Right. Right. Um, yeah, I think there's two parts to it. I mean, first of all, why has there been why has there been this kind of space around environmental law when there hasn't been space around other kinds of issue areas? Yeah, I
1: let's think, start with that.
2: Yeah, let's start with that. That's the the easier of the two questions, I think. Pollution is a big problem it's a problem for everyone in chinese society it's a problem for that goes all the way up to the very top of society political leaders jack ma everyone they everyone has to live in the in the in chinese cities and deal with this these problems right. so if you're at the helm of this system there is no way to a stable prosperous future that does not involve addressing china's tremendous pollution problems and the, I think the authorities have known that.
0: for So no matter who for, you are, you no have matter to breathe who you are. Beijing's filthy air if you live in Beijing. Absolutely. And your friends home, complain yeah. to you
2: about it. And they talk about maybe going abroad or sending their kids abroad. and so, there's, so I think that the leadership has been quite serious in some sense about addressing pollution problems for maybe 10 years. Although, of course, there's a lot of pressure to also keep up economic growth. So I think that's why you get the space around and the interest in using law as one of many tools to help solve environmental problems. So
1: they're, they're, they're generally pretty safe. I mean, if, if I'm I- I even a pretty activist lawyer in the legal, I mean, in, in the environmental area, even if I'm sort of, you know, using my pulpit to kind of gather the forces of, of the public sphere about me, mm-hmm. I'm safer doing that than, say, if I am, you know, defending persecuted Falun Gong practitioners. or Yeah, Falun Gong is like the third rail. Right, it's like, that's rail. definitely right, right. not okay.
2: Yeah. I mean, that was kind of what captured my imagination about environmental litigation in the first place was it seemed like a really interesting space where there was some freedom for activism, but the messages were still mixed. I mean, uh, environmental lawyers do not feel totally safe. I can promise you that.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, there's just, if you're in any kind of civil lawsuit that's involving lots of people, lots of very angry people, which is what litigation is, by and large, it's not a totally safe space. And then I became really interested in how lawyers and others navigate the boundaries of a space where the signals about what's allowable and what's acceptable are decidedly mixed.
0: And how, how has that changed in, in very recent years? I mean, Kaiser asked about the yeah. late aughts and yeah. the tremendous uptick of cases then. What about the last few years, the Xi Jinping years?
2: I mean, I know, know I'm a listener of your podcast and a fan of your podcast as well, so I know you've been talking to other guests about what you call the new truculence of the of the of Maybe. the she- use Kaiser like T M. <laughs> Kaiser T M. <laughs> <laughs> if it was I'll cite it too. Oh, um, awesome. <laughs> um so I know you've been talking to others about that and sure. I th- I think that that's real. So I think that the boundaries of what's allowable have been shrinking, that there's still some room for activism, but some things that were Maybe acceptable, or people were experimenting with, are now have sort of moved into that zone of being decidedly off limits. Foreign funding is a good example. Right, right, right. That's gotten steadily more sense. So Chinese groups accepting funding for it from even international in, funding, even
1: in environmental areas. I mean, that's that's something I was curious about. Um, so the new NGO law and all this. I mean, there's there's a tightening down in especially foreign funded NGOs. Is is that reflected also in foreign funding of, of environmentally focused NGOs.
2: Yeah. I mean I think foreign funding has become sensitive right, 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 across right. the board. In NGO- for environmental NGOs in particular, I always think about there are the people who are just doing environmental education, which is really important work that has never been politically sensitive. Right. And then there the, then there's the litigation mm-hmm, part mm-hmm. of it. And litigation has always been somewhat always politically been. sensitive because of this because it involves Large groups of angry people.
1: I always found environmentalism to be an interesting area because of the, like you said, the sort of expanded space for activity in, in mm-hmm. it. Um, but, you know, isn't that just an, another area around which, another pole maybe around which oppositional politics can coalesce?
2: Yeah. And in fact, that's what happened in Eastern Europe.
1: Right. Exactly. I mean, you'd think that they, since they're learning so many lessons from that, I mean...
0: Well, I, I mean, I, isn't that the reason why things like Under the Dome, the film, was, was you know, kind of taken off the air on the internet? Yeah. What's as, your take about Under the Dome?
2: I, I mean, I th- the I, again, I think the Chinese authorities are super hyper aware of this history. So I think environment for all that there has been a little bit more space there is an area that's also watched very closely because it can camouflage people with a wide range of agendas, some of which might be related to political liberalism or democracy.
0: What about lawyers who are working on environmental issues, say, for example, trying to bring a lawsuit against a large, polluting state-owned mm-hmm. enterprise? I mean, it's still got to be safer than somebody defending like Falun Gong practitioners, absolutely. or Uyghur terrorists, or separatists, yeah, or something like yeah, that, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So as I was starting to suggest, I see it as a spectrum. Uh-huh. If you think about I litiga- think about the spectrum of litigation, from cases that are absolutely not tolerated. That would be Falun Gong, Tibet, the Third Rail, right. Taiwan. Those are the really obvious. To cases that are totally uncontroversial, anything from Xinjiang.
0: Yeah, right. That, that's on the contra-
2: <laughs> that's on the forbidden side. Then yeah. you've got cases that are totally uncontroversial, and you can think about contract disputes. That would something very commercial and. You know, not political at all. And I, what I think is so interesting about environment, and I put labor in this category too. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Is these are issues that are in the middle, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where in some ways there's some modicum of state support for the underlying issue and for resolving the underlying issue, but there's some political sensitivity there too. Maybe for these various are the real, real
1: bellwethers, and that, that to watch labor and to watch environmental activism are mm-hmm. maybe you know the best ways to see where the winds are blowing in, in, in yeah, I definitely
2: think the that
1: they're area. a good place to look. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, you know, there's another paper that you 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 co-authored um, some years ago, and it's something that about which Jeremy and I have uh, not just talked a lot about, but you know, experienced very much at first hand while living in Beijing. It's the old blurred boundary trick, where, where, you know, not knowing exactly where the lines are, whether you're talking about censorship or or, or what, what have you has had this sort of insidious effect of getting you to tread more carefully to self-censor to play it safe. Can you talk a little bit about that 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 paper of yours?
2: Yeah, um the 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 paper is about uncertainty and self-censorship as control mechanisms in contemporary China. If you look at other kinds of authoritarian states, where China sort of starts to stand out and look quite different from other places weirdly, for all the coercion that there is in China, for all the people getting beat up and thrown in jail, it's it's actually not that big a part of the state's social control portfolio. They just don't have the capacity. It's such a big country with so many people to throw all the lawyers or all the journalists in jail. So it's actually a pretty targeted small section of the population. And I don't, I'm not trying to, this is not trying to
1: Oh, we get it. We're yeah. not defending. I'm this, not
2: defending the. I'm not, not defending the policy. But. I'm just pointing out in absolute terms, it's relatively small. They don't
0: have a thought police. They don't have a uh, a secret security yeah. person on every corner watching what you're doing. But if you get too big, right, you might go down, and everybody else doesn't know where the might starts and the definitely will.
2: Exactly, and there, if you, it's not. There have been other surveillance states in history that have had a far more extensive surveillance apparatus, where citizens have been much more afraid to talk in public. Than is the case in China. In China, you actually have a lot, as you guys know, you can pretty much say whatever you want in a lot of settings. Sure. With friends, over dinner.
0: Even on the internet in some cases.
2: Absolutely.
0: But you never know who's going to come for you. I mean, is another aspect of it the fact that there are so many different uh, state bodies that can do you over for one alleged crime or another? I mean, you know, for example, if you're publishing a website, which is where I... You know, found myself often facing this uncertainty issue of yeah. like not knowing what the rules were. You know, you had the police who could come and get you in trouble for the intern you had working who didn't have a work visa or some you know problem like that. But you could also have at the time it was GAPP, the General Administration of Press and Publications, or SAFT, the State Administration of Radio and Film and Television, which was trying to get control of internet video. When I was doing it, um, you know, you have uh, the State Council on Information Office, the party's propag- propaganda organizations, all these. Different different bodies which might take an interest in one field of activity does that play into the the effectiveness of uncertainty as a censorship tool
2: i think it plays into the effectiveness of uncertainty as a censorship tool and i think it also helps explain the existence of uncertainty as a censorship tool so all those different bodies that you mentioned they have overlapping jurisdictions right so they're Sometimes the uncertainty comes from actually a lack of central coordination. Right. That any of these different organizations could take the lead. It's plausibly within their ambit, but they're not don't necessarily have a have a centralized policy.
1: Without naming names, certain internet companies that I may have had some affiliation with in the past probably did actually take advantage of this of the sort of the let's call them the gaps between jurisdictional zones or the the, the contested areas where you could actually do things because you knew
0: that you could just sort of play your parents off against each other. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you haven't asked for permission, then all you have to do is say sorry and you can kind of get away with it Yeah, sometimes.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. So what I'm really interested in though is that um, how does this sort of gray space policy play out when it when somebody does does take something like this to court, when it, it be, when you, we want to make it, when, because, you know, we've seen cases of this mm-hmm. before. It's like, OK, show me the law here that I have actually violated that, you know, the reason why you have censored this particular post. And the Chinese party state has been really reluctant to do that. Um, you know, is I'm curious about your take on, on that on that as I like got a policy tool.
2: How does it work when they, when when, they try when, to take it to courts? When yeah. They actually, yeah, I mean, I think the biggest problem is getting the, the traditionally the biggest problem has been getting the case accepted by the courts. Mm-hmm. And that's been a place where for all that there's ambiguity that there's actually a person there who has to make a decision about whether or not the case enters the courts. So showing up literally at the case filing division right. and trying to get the paperwork accepted has has been has been a huge obstacle for activist lawyers of all stripes
1: so there's a concept that you brought up in in that paper um you call it control parables yeah uh, can you talk a little bit about that what are what are control parables and, and how how does how do they work yeah context? i'd be
2: happy i'll talk about it, and then i want to know if you and jeremy ever heard any
1: sure <laughs> while you,
2: when you were in
1: Let's hear what your time are. there
2: here's what here's what it is so i became interested in this idea of well, you've got all these people operating, in my, in my particular case, lawyers operating in a gray space where you don't know what's allowed and what's not allowed. How do people figure it out? How do they make decisions about about risk? And I was living in Beijing in 2007, and I noticed that I thought that storytelling was playing a really important function. So when somebody got in trouble, and that story circulated through a community as that story was retold, it was often retold in a way that the people who were involved in the conversation started trying to guess at what line had been crossed, at what the moral was or what the takeaway is. So, for example, I, there were a lot of public interest training programs happening at that time for lawyers. So I went to one and the lawyer who organized it got into trouble. So for months afterwards, I would interact with people in this community of public interest lawyers, and the conversation would be, hey, I'm just going to use a pseudonym here. Hey, did you hear what happened to lawyer Wong? She She got into trouble for organizing that conference. I heard it was reported all the way up the chain because the people at that conference vilified the Chinese government. And so the very natural response to that is to say, wow, wow, that's so weird. I was at that conference, and it was exactly the same as 12 other conferences I went to in that time period. What did Lawyer Wong do differently that might have gotten her into trouble? And so very organically, you get this back-and-forth speculation about the lines that were crossed. Well, maybe it was because she accepted foreign funding. Maybe it was because she didn't do it under the protective umbrella, uh, the baohusan, uh, the university involvement. And pretty quickly as those stories circulate, people start to, I mean, I've done this myself. I've participated in these conversations. You start to get more and more convinced by your own explanations (laughs) that you made up in your own head. And so it's only a tiny leap from that to then saying, you know, I think it's better if we don't take any foreign funding. And so what starts off as a series of guesses become solidified into what I would call socially shared rules. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Oh, uh, Jeremy, I I know that we both encountered this phenomenon. Well, sure. I
0: mean, you know, when I used to run, forgive me about talking about this, but this subject brings a lot of my experiences running Dunway. I mean, before 2009, when it wasn't blocked, we were a lot edgier than sort of Beijing or Shanghai-based expat magazines or a lot of the... China-focused content in English that wasn't, you know, a foreign newspaper. And I used to continually get asked why we weren't blocked. Mm-hmm. And my pat answer, my kind of boilerplate was, well, first of all, we're in English. And second of all, most of what we do is a translational commentary on stuff that's already appeared in the Chinese language. And thus, as it were, is almost pre-censored. So we're not going to go o- over any lines that Chinese people haven't already gone over. Therefore, we should be fine. And then, of course, we were fine until the one day when we weren't and we were blocked. And then the question became, why were you blocked? And that's asked <laughs> of every, every single
1: time somebody gets blocked. I mean, it, yeah. immediately there's this discussion. I mean, sometimes it's obvious. Um, sometimes it's because, you know, it, it, it corresponds with a sensitive date or that there was something that was, was so clearly a transgression, a like, quote-unquote air quotes transgression that 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 it's obvious but then it's those other times when right in my case it was never
0: obvious i still don't know you know why my website got blocked so um it's and that is very effective because anyone looking at that and thinking of doing a similar thing will be like well it could be because he wrote this or published that or it could be because right and then then those
2: become rules that the people in your social circles obey moving forward absolutely
0: jeremy
1: don't you get asked all the time why seneca hasn't been blocked
0: Uh, Yeah, that is uh, a good question. But let's maybe edit that out. I don't. I don't want you to jinx us. Um, (laughs) Jeremy, did
2: you ever come to a conclusion? No, I didn't. Really? I I mean, my my favorite theory for the last
0: few years is that I was doing a consulting job at the time, and some of the things I was saying were annoying some people in the company I was working for, and that one of them just got the hell in and reported. You know, found something objectionable and reported it. uh, Is the theory that I've kind of been you know, most convinced about for the last few years because it just somehow makes sense. But, you know, I don't know. Um, and there's nobody you can ask. You know, they don't have a Yeah, they
2: don't have a, a, a 411 hotline. One number. Yeah, yeah. where yeah. I can say, hey, comma, yeah. you know, what, what's trouble. up? Com. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: So yeah, the lack of transparency introduces this tremendous uncertainty for anybody who is uh, you know, actually doing something in media space. And I guess it's the same for law. Jeremy, let's yeah. start a new company. It's called whywasiblocked.com. Dot com. And, and
1: we'll, we'll explain exactly what it was that your website did to get you blocked. All right. That'll be fun.
2: Um,
0: so this perhaps is an old question, but Rachel, could we talk about the conception of rule of law today sure. in China under Xi Jinping? I mean, he came in very strong, a lot of propaganda about rule of law, mm-hmm. you know, much of it, of it sarcastically dismissed in, mm-hmm. by Western commentators as, you know, like you, rule by, well, like me, by rule by law. It's not actually law as, as one would understand it, say, in the United States. Mm-hmm. Do you think there is any progress that's been made towards the conception of law and the judici- judiciary as an institution of constraint? Or is the separation of powers, you know, one separation too much for the Communist Party of China?
2: I think Xi Jinping is trying to do something really radical. I take his rule of law rhetoric extremely seriously, so I come at it from a maybe a slightly different perspective. But I uh, my think my ears that-
1: perk up. This is interesting. This is the first person we've heard. I'm, I'm, I'm anxious to hear. Have to <laughs> go go no, no. um,
2: I I think he's trying to redefine the very term rule of law. So the, this, all this, to, to make it actually mean something else. And I see this with a lot of different terms in the Chinese legal space, that there's a term that sounds sort of similar to something as a concept in English. And I think that there is an active effort by the Chinese government to redefine what it means. So I think he's really serious about rule of law. But I think, as you say, that what he means by rule of law is not the, what we think of when we think of rule of law here here, here in America.
0: But is it as crude as, you know, I think Gu Kai Lai, I can't remember if she was quoted or if it was in the book she wrote. So this is Boise Lai's wife yeah. who is now rotting in jail for murdering the Englishman, uh, Neil Haywood. Yeah. She's, I think it's in her book, she says of her time in America that the trouble with America is that even when you know the guy on trial for murder did it, you know, this rule of law kind of gets in, in, in your way. Whereas in China, if you know he did it, you just get on with it and issue the correct punishment. I mean, is that Xi Jinping's Conception of code to bite you. <laughs> I think that
2: my take on it is that it's about fair, efficient dispute resolution in the vast majority of cases. So I think that that's sincere. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a minority of highly politicized cases in which there might be party involvement. Because I think that there's a history of the Chinese Communist Party seeing law as a tool to get policy done. And that's a very different starting point for any kind of conception of rule of law than how we think about rule of law in the United States. I mean,
0: that's impossible for most Americans to accept as an idea of rule of law, right? Absolutely. The fact that you can't Absolutely. use it to defend the individual against the state, even if it works in the majority of cases, goes against the, the American spirit, doesn't
2: it? Yeah, and let me put it in a different way. To put it very simply, I don't think there's any interest in judicial independence insofar as judicial independence means independence from the party.
1: Right, and and again, to just we can bring up this idea, notion that there is a spectrum here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean that we we shouldn't see it as binary. Either it is American style rule of law, or it's that thing that we just dismiss as rule by law. I mean, there is something in between. I mean, where uh, a a more robust judiciary doesn't need to become a truly effective institution of constraint, where you know to the point where it subjects. Any and all people, irrespective of, of their place in the political hierarchy, to that same law. I mean, it's it, it maybe doesn't attain to that, but it, it still improves, you know, quite conspicuously uh, the ability to, to dispense justice and,
0: uh, you know, uh, as what, what you yeah. said. <laughs> yeah, everyday justice. Everyday justice, right. Everyday justice, right.
2: Everyday right. justice for most people.
0: So, I mean, do you think we've seen signs of that in, in effect? Like, is it, I mean, okay, so you can't take the Constitution at, at its word and have real freedom of speech, but Mr. Wang with his, his, his field being polluted by not the biggest state-owned enterprise, but, you know, Mr. Zhou's cadmium factory, he has a chance in today's China. Yeah. Is, is that, would that be an accurate statement?
2: I think in any country anywhere in the world, it's hard to win a legal case if you go up against economic elites in your hometown. So having said that, if you're taking on the big factory, whether it's Aaron Brockovich in the United States or, you know, Mr. Wong's giant SOE in in China, I think that's a hard case to win. But when I look at the legal reforms, I read them as a sincere effort to try to make courts work better for ordinary people. So let me just give you one small example that I think didn't get as much play in the uh, English press as it maybe should have. So I said that one of the earlier that one of the key obstacles in environmental cases was getting the case into the court, convincing the judges who literally sit at the desk in the case acceptance division to accept the case. And there were there was a major reform to try to give those judges a lot less discretion. Because what was happening was they were saying no to cases that looked like they were going to be politically sensitive Uh, and that were going to be a headache for the court. So under the new regulations that probably took effect maybe 18 months ago now, those judges are just supposed to accept everything that comes in the door. Oh, wow. Huge change. Oh, my gosh. Actually empirically unclear how it's playing out on the ground. Um,
1: But something you'll be looking at. And Something me and others yeah, like yeah. me will be looking and at. And that yeah. you'll, you'll come on to talk to us about next yeah, time. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah,
2: I, I view that as a sincere effort to try to, to try to make the courts into the preferred forum for dispute resolution. Because again, better courts than protest.
1: Rachel Stern, thanks so much. Thank for you, that. Guys. That Fascinating conversation. And uh, we look forward to chatting with you again about this and about other things. Uh, so stick around with us so we can hear what you have to recommend to our listeners. Yeah. Great. Uh, before we get to recommendations, we want to remind our listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at SubChina.com. You can follow SubChina on Twitter at, at SubChina News and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash SubChina News. Recommendations, Jeremy. Watch kicks off.
0: All right. I don't think this has been recommended on the podcast before. It's a blog called Politics from the Provinces. So the URL is politicsfromtheprovinces.blogspot and I have it bookmarked as .de. It might work on .com as well. It's written by somebody who appears to spend a lot of time in the provinces in China. And I think he um, describes it, self-describes it as, you know, politics from outside the beltway of Beijing and Shanghai. Um, And he's quite a a, 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 um, perspicacious observer of the Chinese scene and, you know, how things look a little different. Do we, when you, do we know who he is? I don't actually know who he, he I think it's a he, it maybe a chooses to remain, um, she. He chooses to remain anonymous. I think so, but well worth a read. Politics from the provinces. And yeah, it is always good to get a voice who is in China immersed in the Chinese life, but not in Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen, where one can have a very distorted view of the People's Republic. Really? <laughs> 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 Not at all. Like chi oh, yeah, is a perfect microcosm. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Excellent. Uh, politics in the, from the, politics pro- from from the, the provinces. provinces. So. That's a long-ass URL. We'll okay. put a link to it. Yeah, we will. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you. Rachel, what do you have for us?
2: I'm a fan of documentary film, so I want to recommend a documentary film by a director named Joe Hao. Um, in, in English, it's called the Chinese Mayor. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Did, you, did, that's you, great. did someone talk about it? We, on this We podcast? have, but no.
1: You know, it's worth another recommendation. I think Jeremy. I think you. You probably. I, I, it. I think
2: I
0: recommended the New York
1: Times
2: oh, had you? a kind
0: of little, um, oh, you know, short right. version did, of did. it. That they They put ten Yeah. Okay. Well, so well, I'm going to endorse the whole. The film. whole thing. Yes. Right. Excellent.
2: Um, because you can now see it on YouTube for four bucks. It's oh, actually excellent. the first time I've rented anything on YouTube. But it's it, for those of you who didn't hear the uh, the, the earlier thing. It's. Um, The filmmaker followed around the mayor of Datong and had incredible access over like a three year period. It's a super interesting film. And for me, there's the, the interesting thing at the core of the film is the ambiguity over whether the mayor is a good official and is doing his best in a difficult system. Or whether he himself is part of the problem and out for his own self aggrandizement. <laughs> that's exactly right. That, you know, that's he, a he,
0: description he, of everybody in China, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you know, everybody in the world. <laughs> yeah.
1: Because he, he's kind of he's kind of a jerk. I mean, and you know, he, he's, I, I, you know he's foul-tempered and foul-mouthed, and, and...
2: I, I kind of went back and forth watching the film. But he gets
0: stuff done, right? That's I mean, Tommy does... Carcetti
1: from The Wire. Uh.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, Uh My local plug is it's also playing at the Pacific Film Archive here in Berkeley if you're local on September 30th and the filmmaker will be there.
1: Alas, I think September 29th is the day that this runs. So get out there and and, and watch it if you happen to catch this podcast the day that it runs and you are in the San Francisco Bay Area. Excellent recommendation, Rachel. Thank you. Uh, Mine is a kind of pre-recommendation for a new novel which is out this fall uh, by my favorite novelist who is Michael Chabon. Uh, who lives here in Berkeley? In fact, uh, do you know him?
2: Not personally. Oh, no. Man, I'm looking for some. I follow who's his do. wife's Twitter account. That's yeah, as yeah. close as I get.
1: Yeah, yeah. She's she's an interesting person too. She's she's a lawyer, right? No, wait.
2: She's a novelist, I think
1: she, she has some sort of connection to the legal profession at some point. That part. may well be true. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, the novel is called Moonglow and uh, most of the reviews that I've seen so far are really great. I don't know who gets to do these reviews because I, I, I he didn't send me like a, well, a, a I, galley. I want to
0: just put in a, a warning message to our listeners. I once bought a, a book on Kaiser's pre-recommendation before I'd actually read the book and it was terrible. So <laughs> use, use your own... Uh, what was that? What was that? It was some terrible book set in Cape Town. It was truly horrible. I don't remember what it was and I hope it's erased from my memory but so just a war I'm sure this author comes slightly with slightly better hey look this is a guy who won but. a
1: Pulitzer for for the amazing adventures of Cavalier and Clay okay so this they say it's a return to form some people didn't like his second his one after one, Telegraph Avenue uh, but I, I loved it uh, anyway he's just to me he can do no wrong anyway uh, plus
2: it's a Bay Area themed recommendation
1: yes it is a Bay Area themed recommendation um yeah, and then also stop by and harass the people at Revolution Books because it's good fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh Rachel, thanks once again for making the time.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: Yeah. Uh Jeremy, as always.
0: I just uh, hang on a second before we go, I'd just like to ask Kaiser, do we support the Khmer Rouge? <laughs> <laughs> Barbara? <laughs>
1: The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Special thanks this week to Anla Cheng, to Amadeo Tumalulo and to Sarai Darabi from SubChina. Thanks also to TT Liu from Stanford and to Jan Barris from the National Committee for US-China Relations for so strongly recommending that we chat with Rachel, which turned out to be wonderful. So drop us an email at Seneca, not you guys, but everyone, drop us an email at Seneca at com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Seneca Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Rock and roll!